Welcome to episode 42.5 of the How Did It Happen podcast hosted by Mike Malatesta. In this episode, we highlight some past guests to share eight unbelievable ways people became successful entrepreneurs. Let's get started with Todd Barden, 401k expert, wealth management consultant, and combat sports athlete who has competed in Thailand and trained with some of the best Muay Thai fighters. You know, you've become one of the premier 401k Mm -hmm. advisors in, not just in Milwaukee, but in in the country, really. How'd that happen? My brother was going to University of Arizona in Tucson, so we flew to Minneapolis. So I sat next to this gentleman and struck up a conversation. We started talking about the auto industry, and he was very knowledgeable about business, and we knew a lot of mutual people. And then he said, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, finance or, or financial services? And I said, yes, I have. I just haven't met the right people to talk about it. So he encouraged me. He, he gave me a card and he said, look, talk to this person, um, uh, Tom Shannon, when you get back into uh, Milwaukee area. And he said, tell him I, I uh, recommended you sit with him. And I said, absolutely, I will definitely do that. And then the odd part, Mike, the way things would happen, we, we talked about many things, but we didn't talk about where we were headed to and got into that next plane. And who did I sit to sit next to again? The same person. The Dave, same guy, Dave, both? The same guy, Dave DeSimone, okay. uh, who's been one of my mentors. So we sat next to each other again on the way to Tucson, and and then we really kind of opened up. So fast forward, I did go to that interview, and through that process, uh, I did start, and he was one of my early mentors to kind of help me understand the business, things that I should need to do. So do you consider that a lucky break or do you consider that something different? It's part luck or, or part um, divine intervention that I actually sat next to this person. and but I Or talk to him. I also talk to him. you can sit yeah. next to someone and not say anything. That's what Absolutely. I do all the time. I think when you're young, you can't see through the treetops sometimes. And, sure. and I think really kind of had an idea of how they could, you know, coach me along and bring me to that position. And I think one of the things that they interviewed uh, me very hard on is, was I coachable? That that was one thing that was a definite yes. You know, he, he said, you know, you you have to make that decision if you're going to be the smartest guy in the room or if you're going to be different, you know, especially the 401k industry. I just believed uh, uh, that if I could be that person in that area, they could actually be a teacher Ultimately, that would put you in a better position to be a trusted partner, you know, further double down with that effort through the years and and firmly believe in that. Wayne Breitbarth, CEO of Power Formula LLC and perhaps the foremost leading authority on LinkedIn in the country. So we're in that second recession and we're panicking. I mean, me as the accountant really panicking because I'm seeing the books and we dropped from 16 million in sales to eight Mm -hmm. in one year. And we're going, oh my gosh. And I was going, what am I going to do? I'm the accounting guy. You know, I just sit here and watch the beans come in and there's half the beans there were last year. A friend of mine was very persistent to bother me at that time about LinkedIn, a good church friend saying, you got to be on LinkedIn, man. This is what's, this is where things are going in the marketing world. And I said, what? Social media? Are you crazy, Todd? I'm not doing this stupid thing. I see what my kids do on Facebook. I want nothing to do with it. He said, no, it's very different. You should check into it. I said, I know what you think. Have a nice week. <laughs> and I'd shove them off every Sunday. <laughs> to one Sunday, I finally said, Tata, stop. I mean, when are you going to stop with this LinkedIn thing? He said, well, I will stop today. He said, but here's the deal. I'm going to call you a curmudgeon. You're an old curmudgeon. So I'm going to leave it all on the table. I'm not going to bother you about LinkedIn anymore, but I'm going to tell you, 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 you're not doing this because it's something different and something changed and something you're not comfortable with. Not because you don't think it's any good. You just don't want to change. And I was, no, that's not me. Are you kidding me? I'm not an old curmudgeon, you know. Finally, I was, and, and it was that week 
when he hit me with the curmudgeon and the old guy, you won't change kind of thing. I was in a hotel room in Holland, Michigan at Hayworth. And Hayworth was the kind of furniture we sold. And we were there for a bunch of meetings. And I was in my hotel room waiting for my next meeting. And I'll never forget it because I said, you know what? I'm in the hotel room. I got two hours to burn. I'm going to try this stupid thing. I'll give it 20 minutes because I'm pretty sure in 20 minutes I'll see it's just as stupid as I think it is. Okay. It wasn't 15 minutes that I said, oh, my God, he was right. It's not a social media tool. It's something very different than that. This could help us sell some furniture. And I spent the next hour and a half looking around, seeing what's going on, reading articles that were out there, ordered three books from Amazon. And then for the next two months in this privacy and silence of my own home, I studied this crazy thing. And that was my aha moment to take it from social media to, oh my gosh, here's this database that I can find people and find out who my friends knew. And LinkedIn shows you that, right? I go, you know what? This is going to work. And I could see that using name dropping with permission was getting me appointments that our sales guys weren't getting. Catch this, 90 days from that hotel room day, we booked an order for 200000 in furniture that I had something to do with, you know? And so I, I said, this is for real. And, and what I started doing then, I, and then I became so passionate about this crazy tool because I said, this is, people don't know what's here. I thought, you know what? I'm going to start having classes for free. I could see that I was gaining traction. My wife said we should write a book. First edition of the book comes out in 2011. Power, Power Formula, Formula for LinkedIn Success. Yep. Jumps up to number one and it stays there for the whole year. So now I start to get some national notoriety. People are calling me from all over the country. We're doing a conference. We understand you wrote this book. Want to come speak. That was starting to happen. Uh, my classes at the dealership, I started actually charging a little money for them because there was a lot of value there. Sure. And all that was leading into my partner and I having conversations about me leaving. Kyle Weatherly, CEO of Frontdesk, who grew his company Solaris 20 times over in a 10-year period and sold it to a German conglomerate. So I moved out to Compton, California to uh, work for Habitat for Humanity there, and I fell in love with it. In the process, I disabused myself of the notion that I wanted to go to law school, and in the matter of six months or a year, I decided that I wanted to run a nonprofit, uh, most likely run a Habitat for Humanity. So I went to the La Follette School at Madison, stayed with that goal, wanted to run a nonprofit somewhere in the world. And I got done in about a year and a half. And at the same time, I was finishing up. My mom, who had started the company in a basement about 10 years prior, had grown the company to about six people. She didn't love managing it, and she was constantly asking me questions. You know, it, it really interests me. I will add this line to the resume that I ran a six, seven-person company, and they'll position me best to go run a nonprofit somewhere in the world by the time I'm 28, 29. And so I went to work at, at her company, Solaris, and within four, five, six months, I fell in love with it. The fulfillment I was getting from working at Habitat for Humanity, I found I could get that same fulfillment working at a for-profit small company. Uh, the same things you cared about, treating people well, you know, caring about people. We grew the business about 30%, 30 to 40% for the next 10 years. You know, we were about 20x where we were when we started. It had much more to do with just, you know, hard work, making decisions that were focused on the long term. I mean, it wasn't until uh, the end that we ever took a distribution. Mm. Every dime we made went back into the company. 
when we were eight people, I, I could set up metrics for everything, set up systems for everything. By the time we got to 100 or so, and maybe even less than that, I was just, I'm not capable enough to manage all those things. At the end of the day, I needed to just trust people at the company, hire the best people that we could afford, and trust them to do a good job. You get to a certain scale where if you're trying to, to manage everything, you're constraining the company. Um, so at, at some point, I just needed to change my leadership style. Ten years later, I walked out of Solaris saying, it's all about the people. It's all about relationships. It's all about trust. So I came out uh, of school thinking it's all about these hard skills that you have and numbers and analytics and plans to 10 years later thinking it's all about feelings and all about relationships and trust. I think it'd be the other way. The more experience you have, the more you'd move towards the analytical side. For right. me, it was the exact opposite. Nick Maris, CEO of Somna Therapeutics, who learned how to be an entrepreneur by hustling to survive as a child. Starting businesses and being an entrepreneur, so much of what we do every day is have to figure it out. The amount of times in my current business at Somna Therapeutics where me or my small team have had to broach a subject, broach a situation, an obstacle, and go, well, we don't know what we're going to do, but we got to figure it out. So for me, it started at a young age. I grew up six kids, a uh, single mom uh, in the inner city projects in Milwaukee, a lovely place called West Lawn. And at a very young age, you got to figure it out. The first thing um, is how to survive. Tough place those government projects. And the second thing is how to get food, uh, literally how to eat. Never had lunch money, and I had to figure out how to get food during the day, or how to find money to get food. And so I was probably a 45, 50 pound first grader, and I used to compete with the fourth and fifth graders, the big guys. Happened to be pretty good at marbles, and so what I used to do is I would win their marbles at first recess and over lunch recess, and then I would sell them their marbles back in the afternoon recess. And that's how I got lunch money. Some of the challenges that came from that is, um, I think it also applies to being an entrepreneur, is um, sort of the challenges of having your competitors also be your customer. Turned out to be a very mm. difficult thing for me to manage. I found myself running home from school 11 blocks to my house, evading. Being chased. Being chased by the fourth and fifth graders who were going to get me after school. So it was a, an exciting time as a young person. Like I said, you figure it out and you figure out how to survive. I did pretty well in high school, um, did the valedictorian speech at my high school graduation, got most all the scholarships uh, that were available at the time from Marquette is where I ended up going. Most of my college tuition, room and board, and living expenses were paid by scholarships, and then I earned a living playing pool. So you're a hustler. Um, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I, I suppose if, if, if that's a compliment, I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, it's that. definitely a compliment. Yeah. Like on a Friday, I would have maybe $5 to my name bars in the area where there are pool tables and the the kids that would have more money would be there and I would go with my last five dollar bill that had to somehow I needed to multiply that to be able to eat for the weekend and for the next week and so I would go play pool for a dollar a game two dollars a game five dollars a game with those individuals that weren't quite as skilled at the game but had excess money and then I graduated to pool halls which is those are rough places and those were the $20, $40 games where you have to compete and they're very good players. I would take my college kid bar winnings and try and multiply it at these kinds of places to uh, survive. And along the way, I also was uh, worked at the um, Boys Clubs of America. So sort of, sort of a very different, <laughs> different scenario. And, I, and, I, and I worked with kids. And so it was really <laughs> great. So sort of a very different world. So between doing the schoolwork, working at the Boys Club, and trying to make a living um, – you know, playing pool as a young person, um, just had to figure it out and survive and make it work. So, um, so those, I think those kinds of things growing up help people in their, 
in their business life when they run into obstacles and challenges, particularly in an entrepreneurial setting. Sequoia Borgman, founder and managing director of Borgman Capital, the son of hippie parents and a single mom, wanted more than working in a factory and instead figured out how to buy companies. I mean, first name Sequoia. Um, a lot of people want to know the impetus for that name. I had hippie parents. I was born in Northern California in the 70s. We're very involved in the hippie lifestyle. Um, my mom, she was a, kind of a high school dropout. My dad had just gotten out of the military. They had me and never got married and, and separated while I was, when I was young. But I, I feel like that really set me up for, for the success I've had. Um, my mom, a uh, single mother, she raised us um, working odd jobs that you can get when you're um, not a high school graduate. So they're not very good jobs. I mean, she, she worked as a maid. She worked, she babysat. She picked up all kinds of odd jobs, but she, she made it work. And, and one of the things when you don't have a good education is she moved a lot for a job. So growing up, we were moving every six months or a year at the most. So by ninth grade, I'd been to nine different schools. That's pretty much a, a different school every year. But when you go through that experience, you learn how to make new friends at being the new kid at school every year. And that really has helped me throughout my whole career. In high school, I worked a lot of factory jobs after school, second shift with adults, and really figured that that's not what I wanted to do long term. I did really well in school, really got into uh, a nice college, originally wanted to be a finance major, primarily because growing up, I, I thought bankers were the ones that made the most money. And now that I have a lot of banker friends, I, I realize they have nice titles, but not necessarily that uh, is the best paid job. Soon into my college, I uh, transferred over to uh, accounting because they were hiring at the time, getting my master's degree in, uh, in four years. Started with Arthur Anderson out of school, which was one of the top firms at the time. That was a great experience. Really good mentors, learned a lot through that. I mean, everybody says accounting is the language of business, and it, it really is the truth. I mean, if you can read a financial statement, you really know what's going on with a, a business. Spent almost 20 years in public accounting, moved up pretty quick, made manager within three years, was running a practice within eight or nine years, worked for a couple of big firms, and finished my last five years in public accounting running a practice for RSM. Uh, here in Milwaukee. Throughout that period, I'd worked on a lot of different companies, but really worked on a lot of transactions and, and, and with a lot of private equity firms all over the country, but really large ones from KKR and Blackstone and Carlisle down to smaller regional private equity firms. And primarily at RSM, I worked with a lot of really good private equity firms. And, and when I worked with them, I would help with the structuring. But what I focused on was the businesses and kind of the entrepreneurs that created these businesses and what they did to create a successful business and really got the idea that I'd got about as far as I could. Once you make partner in public accounting, there's not a lot above that. I mean, you are an owner of a firm, but um, I, I kind of wanted to do more. So I decided that I would start a, a private equity firm here locally, formed a group to do acquisitions. I had two under LOI when I started. Actually, the, the funny story, the first one actually fell apart. It wasn't what I expected coming out and all the planning, years of planning to do this and then have the first deal fall apart. you were on your road to the first deal and then... Right. No. No, okay. exactly. So I, I look back, um, th that'll be a good story to tell in 10 years that uh, went through this whole process and then walked away from a really nice cushy job. The first 
first deal fell apart. But luckily, we had another deal that um, we invested in a company, actually two companies in January of this year. Those closed. Um, one was a food um, processing um, equipment manufacturer, and the other one was more of a metal fabrication business. So I invested in that one in January. We had three material handling companies that we bought in June. You you actually invested in, in did. one of those deals. So, And that company has been doing great. And then, then we did a small add-on acquisition in September for the first one. And, and we have one more under LOI that we hope to close by the end of the year. So we've been, it's been a busy year. Yeah. So that's five companies and some of them were interrelated, but it doesn't matter. Five companies so far. Yeah. And, that, right? and the add-on would be six. And the add-on would be six. Yeah. It's a pretty yeah. phenomenal year for It's, it's for been, been a just, lot, lot just of fun. starting out. Yeah, but I mean, it's not. Um, it, I had planned on it for many years before I, I jumped into it. So, um, but yeah, it's been a really great year. Alita Norris, co-founder of Living as a Leader, who recalls the moment she knew her calling was leadership training. So the first company I worked for, very very committed to professional development of their employees, and. Coming out of the gate in my first year, I started attending sales training, and I was just in awe. So, of course, I was in training to become a sales rep. I found myself more fascinated by this world of training and development than in my own job as a salesperson and really made a mental note as I as I observed the facilitator at the front of the room, I, I just made a mental note I want to be her one day. So what Harland equipped us with as salespeople was a kind of this bag of training. We could go to a bank and we could say to them, listen, if you will give me your check printing, I've got some curriculum. I could come in and teach your frontline bankers oh. how to cross sell financial services. So I actually landed a major account because I offered to come in and do training for them for free. And so I started doing this training. I absolutely loved it. In fact, my regional manager in Atlanta, Georgia, said to me, Alita, remember, you're a sales rep. You are not a trainer. When I hit about the five-year mark, this large savings and loan approached me and said, hey, our training manager retired. We really like the training you're doing for us. Would you be interested in becoming our training manager? And I said, heck yeah. Made a decision to go back to grad school and retool for the whole adult education industry. So I took the job. The story just continues from there because I ended up only staying at the savings and loan for a year. So the next stop in my journey, I actually went and joined Humber, Mundy, and McClary, who is an industrial psychology firm yeah. in Milwaukee. Many people are familiar with them. This was a really good opportunity in my journey because to join a consulting firm like this and to be connected with this world-class curriculum from Wilson Learning, it, it just was fantastic for me to have in my in my repertoire. Okay. So I all told I worked with the Human Resources Development Center and Humber, Mundy, and McClary for about 10 years and got certified in dozens of workshops that were available through Wilson Learning. And overlapped somewhere in the middle of that decade, I actually, parallel to my work with them, launched my own business. While I was incidentally selling solutions for 
my work at Humber, Muddy, and McClary and the Human Resources Development Center, I also was running into some situations that I could support myself that didn't need a Wilson Learning Solution. It happened by, first of all, by my landing a really big client and started to bring in some solutions, but what they needed went beyond the Wilson Learning Curriculum could satisfy. So this client started to become a hybrid client. And so some of the work was under the guise of Human Resources Development Center, and some of the work was under the guise of me. And part of this was driven by their need for custom curriculum. So I went out into the marketplace, and I recruited a team of five people to come onto this project. I happened to have met my business partner, Nancy Lewis, and I met her through my husband at the time, who was working at the Milwaukee Journal. And he came home from work one day, and he said, oh, we have a new training manager. You really should meet her. Her name is Nancy called Nancy and Nancy said, oh, I would love to meet. So I went to meet with her. We really enjoyed one another. And I said, hey, as it happens, I'm in a conversation with Masterlock. And if you're interested in leaving corporate and coming out into the training and consulting world as an independent person, I could at least give you some work. And she had a certification Masterlock needed. So I'm like, oh, I need you. You know, like I need I need this DDI certification. She she was about as, as afraid as one could be and decided to come and join me. At the same time, the journal kept her on as a contractor as well. So she had a good situation. Okay. And that really is a reminder for anybody that there's creative ways that we can make things work. You know, we don't always have you to don't walk have to up. jump off the ledge, right? No, you, you don't. Can... Like you don't have to walk out, you know, the, the, the safe corporate job. Sometimes the corporate people want you and they're willing to have you in a different way. So she stayed on with them for six more months, half time. She joined me and we started developing this curriculum. We kind of hit the streets in Milwaukee, knocking on doors of manufacturing companies saying, hey, you know, we do... We do frontline team development. We do the human side of lean manufacturing. And we started to build a name for ourselves. And one day when we were in a conference room at Masterlock working on one, creating one of the modules for this series, we both just had an aha at the same time. And we said, you know, why the, the, this whole city is filled with sole proprietors and individual trainers. Why don't we form a partnership and leverage the power of two? So we did. We were off and running. What were you called then? When we formed our company, Impact Consulting, the list of services we provided was about one mile long. We basically said, we can do anything. Well, that was really stupid. Because if you say you can do anything, A, you have to figure out how to do it once you sell it. And B, you can't build a team of, you can't build a team of experts if you claim to be able to do everything. We decided to reinvent our company, and in 2002, we, we like blew up the whole list and said, let's just do one thing, and let's just do it really well, and let's build a team, and let's become a premier provider of that one thing across the whole country. And the one thing we chose was leadership development. So we became living as a leader. We actually took all of that team curriculum we developed, we took it and just threw it all away. We just end of life that and and created a leadership series instead. We started from ground zero. Tim Dodge, CEO of Hanson Dodge Creative, decided not to go into his dad's business and made his own mark following his passion for photography and entrepreneurism. When I was a little kid, we'd come home from school 
and uh, climbing into the family room up on the couch watching afternoon cartoons after school. And that room happened to also be my dad's office. And he worked out of the house and ran his own business as a uh, salesman in the kind of hardware and plumbing industries. Um, So I spent my whole childhood watching him act in his business life. And that was kind of fueled it for me that, of course, that's what you do. You get done with school, you get your education, you do this stuff, and then you go run a business and start a business and get some... and. and start to craft your own vision of what you what do you want to see happen. It was normal. It was just normal, yeah. Yeah. I had three other brothers that were all went into business with him and uh the the industry just wasn't it just wasn't an interesting subject to spend my life at. Fairly early on I uh, decided that I really wanted to pursue something more on the creative side. I started as a photographer. Didn't even know the advertising industry existed. I mean, I really didn't think about it at all uh until I kind of stumbled into it. Like I have most things in my yeah. life, <laughs> uh, you know, and studied photography in college and journalism. And then somebody walked up to me down in the basement of Johnston Hall at Marquette's campus. And I was the, working as a photo editor and, and, uh, and he walked up to me, he goes, you the photo editor that did this work in the yearbook? I said, yeah. He goes, you want a job? And I said, yeah. He goes, okay. And then that's the group that I came to work for called Sorgal Lee Reardon at the time, which was a you'd call it an AV company. You know, we, we did multimedia slide presentations and then moving into video and things like that for corporate sales meetings, for uh, just presentations. If you went to the Miller Brewery and saw the saw the big multi-screen shows on the wall and in the tour, you know, that's the kind of stuff we would, would build and make and create. And I we had an office in New York, and so I would spend a lot of time going back and forth between Milwaukee and New York. And and there I got to work with all these freelance artists and creatives and writers and so forth because we'd build teams to go work on projects together there. And, and I came home and said, you know, these people don't know how to run their businesses. And so I started up a, a talent business to manage creative talent uh, in Milwaukee, working with illustrators and photographers and designers. And that's how where I ended up meeting my partner, Ken Hansen, who, who we ultimately you know, worked together for over 30 years uh, at Hansen Dodge. Help us walk us through the, the path from when you met him, it sounds like you were representing him, yeah. to how you came to be partners. After working together for a while, his business was growing at a fairly fast rate. Uh, so we decided what to do is merge my business and his business together. Oh, okay. Is what we did, and uh, and then kind of worked out a balance difference on, on the ownership. Went to the bank and borrowed money to buy into Ken's design business uh, in 1990 uh, to get to get it equally, uh, 50-50 equal ownership. Um, but uh, and then within a couple of years, we spun off and sold off the the original rep business. By that point, you know, he was working out of his house with a couple of people there when I first started working with him. By the time that we became business partners, there were probably a dozen people involved in the in the business at that point. We had moved our offices down to the third ward, um, right across the street from where we're at now. Yeah, and uh, uh, and started working out of there, and then kind of things kind of took off and grew pretty well after that. Oh, for for a number of years now, Third Ward is sort of the hip place to be in the city. Um, what was it like when you moved there? Yeah, it was really different. Uh, when we first uh, moved our business in there, well, the reason we went in there it was the cheapest rent we could find in the city. <laughs> you know, that'll tell you okay. the whole story. You know, <laughs> for a dollar twenty-five a square foot, I could rent a place and have it heated and and, uh, and so forth. Okay, uh, so um, 
it was really an inexpensive place, but it was very desolate. It was em- mostly empty warehouses. So it was, it was kind of a dangerous place. We, we would have to walk the employees to the parking lot at night if we were working late. One morning I showed up to the office and we had this old freight elevator we would go up to get up to the to the offices and uh, and in uh, this bare wood floor in front of it and I looked down and there's a chalk line on the floor uh, uh, and I'm like no that's a joke somebody did that one of the designers did this as a joke or something and then I looked down and there's a big bloody red spot in the middle of it and apparently somebody had broken into the building broke into somebody's space upstairs and the person upstairs just shot him <laughs> and so that was a that was a pretty frightening moment you yeah you wonder well, maybe maybe we shouldn't be staying here but then things just really started to come alive so okay how do you know when you have a good idea that is such a great question um for me uh the hair on the back of my neck stands up when for I, real when i see a good idea okay uh, you know you, you just i i can just you can just feel it right and uh and teams even even sense it you know you'll see your team working on Things and they'll have two or three or five different ideas, or, or a wall covered with ideas, and nothing stands out. And all of a sudden, somebody comes in, or something takes a different shape or a turn, and you go, "That's it. That that's going to work." Um, and 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 the context for that is, of course, um, what you know, what is the framework for how we're judging the ideas, right? So you know, what are we trying to do? Um, are we, you know, how are we trying to kind of create an emotive reaction around this story or this brand? Or and, and so, it almost always incorporates great ideas. Almost always incorporate a very emotional reaction. Steve Palak, partner at Colliers International, a global commercial real estate and investment firm, and iconic host of the Sunday morning radio show Rock and Roll Roots on WKLH in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, I've been doing my Sunday morning show for 31 years, and I love it. And I'm proud of the fact that I've never mailed it in. I, I probably prepare a four-hour show for a three-hour show every week. A love of radio that got me into it rather than a goal, rather than a decision to make it vocational. I just rode the wave of that love. Where did that always, come from? Oh, well, that's actually embarrassing because as a little kid— Jess was so fascinated that I took newspaper ads and cut out the pictures of transistor radios, glued them to cardboard, and walked around with that until my parents acquiesced and got me my own transistor radio. And then I listened to it all the time. As I was uh, old enough to walk to school, I used to do a newscast in my head every single morning because I had heard it on the radio. And so I killed the time pretending to do a newscast on the way to school every single day. So by the time that I had any practical use for that, uh, I had it down. Uh, I was smart slash lucky enough to write a radio station a letter, and I wrote that letter to every single radio station in town. And I said, I'll do anything. I'll sweep your floors. I'll get sandwiches. Please, can I be a part of this? I got two answers back. One of them actually had an opening for a janitor. So they literally wanted me to sweep the floor. The other was from... This kid will be perfect. Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) He'll work for free. And I would have had I not got another response, which was from UWM's radio station, WUWM. And they said, hey, doors wide open, hang out, come in. And I did that all through high school. I went to UWM almost every day. 
the radio career, let's put that aside for a second and let's get into commercial real estate because that's something that, as I understand it, really was not on your radar. You never, never, wasn't, you you weren't brokering deals while you had your transistor (laughs) radio cut out. How, How did that happen for you? That came about after I was in radio for about 10 years and my girlfriend at the time, her father was uh, in a pretty important position at a commercial real estate firm, the Polichek Company, uh, which, as I look back on it, it it was like playing for the Lombardi-era Packers. Uh, Talk about being lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Now, I had no conception whatsoever of commercial real estate, even the world of business. And I was doing a morning radio show which is supposed to be the epitome of that profession. And it was fun. I was pretty miserable getting up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning every day. Uh, But I was done at 10 a.m., so I had my days free. And I'll never forget this. Uh, He was constantly, yet respectfully, constructively, and in a a really gentlemanly way trying to tell me or help me reach the conclusion that I didn't want to be 50 years old playing the latest Rolling Stones album, even though they may be 90 making them. Okay. And uh, so I got glimpses of his world. And he said, well, you've got your day free. Why don't you spend a day with some of our guys? I spent a day with one of the retail brokers that works on restaurants and bringing retailers to town. And we looked at land and came up with some uh, sites that he was looking for a user for. And we went out to lunch at Wendy's, which I'd like, uh, but uh, it wasn't exactly the most impactful day of my life. Uh, I also spent a day with an office broker who took me to a space planning meeting that was just filled with vibrant people. Then uh, we were wined and dined as he was having his brain picked about the marketplace at a white tablecloth restaurant. And we also went to pick up a commission check he was owed that was more on one check that I had seen in my radio career. And I thought, this is really In your career? Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I actually... Went out, got my license because I had my afternoons free, and I was so excited when I passed the test. And uh, I gave two weeks' notice in radio, which is unusual, and totally shifted careers at the age of 30. And one of the things I loved about commercial real estate in uh, those formative years is I was dealing with companies at their highest level. I could literally walk in and talk to a CEO because it was that important. So we're as much a workplace consultant as we are creating a financial transaction. And we have to help people understand not only where they should be because the product is there or the taxes are lower or the occupancy costs may be different, Where are they going to attract a workforce from? Who will actually come there? And all the aspects of what the space looks like used to be based on an economic decision. Now it's based not only on economics, but also how will that translate to being competitive in recruiting and retaining a workforce. Thanks for listening to this episode of the How It Happen podcast, where we believe that success doesn't happen unless you make it happen. 
You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, please rate it and leave a comment as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or whatever you'd like to share. And of course, you can always find me at MikeMalatesta.com. See you next time. Thanks again for listening to the How Did Happen podcast.